This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. It's been more than two years since the largest social movement in the U.S.'s history mobilized to demand justice for racist police brutality. An estimated 15 to 26 million people took to the streets of American cities, and alongside the rallying cry of Black Lives Matter was defund the police. Very quickly, though, establishment pundits decided that while demanding racial justice was now deemed acceptable, it was still too radical to demand a defunding of police. But activists working hard for years to reimagine a police-free vision of public safety have continued making their case. Andrea Ritchie is one of them. She is a nationally recognized expert on policing and criminalization, co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization, and the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. She's the co-author with Mariam Kaba of the newly published book, No More Police, The Case for Abolition. Welcome to the program, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me, Sonali. It's great to be back in conversation with you. So, of course, this notion that defund the police was not new. It was only new to the mainstream press, to politicians in 2020. Um, how far back did it go? We know that the idea of defunding the police goes back a few years, but then the idea of sort of abolishing the, the carceral state as a whole goes back decades, right? Absolutely. I think that certainly the notion of defunding police gained a great deal more traction over the last uh, couple of years, but it is something that can be traced back. Uh, Angela Davis, for instance, who's sort of a leading Black feminist abolitionist who's inspired both Mariam and I in this work, traces in some ways the conversation back to W.B. Du Bois' sort of call for to finish the unfinished work of the abolition of slavery and establishing an abolition democracy, which would be one that would undo the vestiges of slavery and redistribute wealth, resources, and power in such a way as to rectify that and to correct it and heal from it, transform it in our society. And in many ways, the call to defund police grows from that. It's a call to take resources, power, and legitimacy away from institutions rooted in anti-Blackness and racial capitalism and essentially in death-making, policing, punishment, surveillance, and exile, and reinvest them in the rebuilding of the commons of a society built around the, nation, the notion of the common good, of everyone's needs being met as needs and not through uh, distribution that amounts to policing. So I think that uh, the focus on police and prisons um, as part of that movement came about in the 90s as more and more and more funding was being uh, taken, stolen from education, from social programs, from common goods, from social services, from public parks, from libraries, et cetera, and poured increasingly into policing prisons and immigration uh, enforcement. And as that trend has skyrocketed, so has resistance to it, and so has it spread across the country. So when the rallying cry of defund the police in 2020 was met with opposition, we had, that was the year of the presidential election, we had then-candidate Biden saying he was absolutely not in favor of defunding police. Um, and this became a, there was, you know, this was where the mainstream establishment drew the line. Oh, yes, we're all for racial justice. Yes, Black Lives Matter. It took them several years to even admit that. Uh, but no, certainly we don't want to defund the police. And then this year we saw 
the perhaps the best example and the most horrifying example that we could imagine of how police don't equal safety when we saw the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, right? Did that change a perspective? Was that a turning point on this notion that police are central to public safety when you had this contingent of police that did nothing for over an hour as babies were being shot? One of the the question we open the book with is, what is the moment when you began to question the violence of policing? And, mm. you know, there have been so many moments. That was a horrifying one that, you know, was was certainly uh, drew a lot of people into the conversation who maybe had been hesitant to enter it before. And there have been many more, and there are many more in some ways every single day. Some gain more national traction and prominence and others don't. But it's a daily practice that less than half of survivors of gender-based violence don't turn to the police because of the violence and criminalization and because they, that they perpetrate and also because they fail to prevent, interrupt, or heal from violence. And so that's kind of a daily horror that more than half of survivors of violence aren't able or willing to avail themselves of the thing that is increasingly getting the resources to address the harms they're experiencing that's sort of a quiet, you know, Uvalde, right? Hmm. And then there's a, then hmm. there's the sort of daily spectacular forms of violence, some of which gain national attention and some don't, um, that keep making the case for folks. So that that is actually how we open the book is by inviting folks to think about the moment in which for them, the violence of policing and its equation with public safety was ruptured. And then invite them into a conversation about what that rupture makes possible in terms of the imagination of what could be um, in terms of creating safer, more just, thriving and sustainable communities. And the, the point you make about the politicians around defund is, is really important because defund is a, a very concrete demand. It asks them to put their money where their mouth is and to go beyond platitudes and kente cloth to actually making material change that will end the violence, the anti-Black violence, the anti-Indigenous, the anti-migrant, the settler colonial racial capitalist violence that is policing and shift resources in a way that, that undermines the accumulation of wealth and promotes the redistribution of wealth. So of course they don't want to do that. And that's why there's been such a powerful and intense backlash against the demand, which actually, um, as we argue in the book, is a demonstration of its power. So they might, th those who push back against the idea of defunding the police might admit, yes, police are often violating their own ideals. They are often the perpetrators of violence. So the solution is to reform the police. So we've seen years of oh, body cameras and police commissions and citizen commissions that oversee police, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you take on in your book, No More Police, the case for abolition, how do you take on the reformists? Well, the the first thing we do is is take apart the word reform right mariam always invites us to write the word reform in a hyphenated way hmm. reform because that's what you're doing you're reforming the same thing into a new shape with the same purpose and one of the things we did at interrupting criminalization which was also another brilliant idea of thousands that come out of mariam's head it seems every day um uh was to create a, a series of posters in which we and other many scholars and organizers, many of whom are cited or uplifted in the book, 
define policing in a sentence because at its core what reform misapprehends is what police are they're not broken they're not rogue they're not you know just in need of a, a policy reform or a new rule or more intense discipline or more intense um, regulation through civil litigation they're doing exactly what they were set up to do and they're doing it very well and so that's and they are clear that the rules aren't for them what they are charged with doing is maintaining the existing social order and politicians will give them free reign with the occasional exception to sort of make it look like the system's working to do exactly that and to use untold violence, criminalization, suffering, um, and and um, pain and punishment in order to do that. And so the reform chapter really lays that out, lays out what policing is, which is what um, Alexandra Goodwin of the Action Center for Race and Equality calls police the muscle of racial capitalism. Others, you know, talk, I talk about police are violence, not safety. Uh, Mariam Kaba talks about how police are set up to police um, and manage the conditions that racial capitalism creates. There's so many ways to talk about what policing is, and that's what we get at in the reform chapter, is really saying you can't reform something that's doing exactly what it was meant to do. And to also point out that if you need further proof of that, you can look to the last century of attempts to minimize the harms of policing, reduce the harms, make it do what we hope it could do while taking away its more harmful aspects. And each of them have failed. Um, and sometimes they take technological forms. We think, oh, tech will save us like the body cameras or the tasers. And we find they just keep reproducing the same patterns. And that to us is clear evidence that, that that's what policing is. And that at this point, um, we can't keep throwing good money after bad and, and trying to recuperate an institution that has been death making since its inception. Let's focus on this notion of racial capitalism, which I think is so central to this topic, and you take it on so beautifully in your book, No More Police. The, the word defund itself gets to the heart of that, right? Taking money away from police and putting it back into the things that, that foster public safety so we don't need police. Because currently, as it stands, you have a society where wealth keeps flowing upwards and to quell the unrest among the masses who are every day having to figure out how to pay back student loans or rent, etc. Um, the police are necessary, right? And so, so let's explore that because that is an analysis that we almost never get in the mainstream media. You might get critiques of capitalism, you might get critiques of police, but you rarely get critiques that connect the two. We are students of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, of Angela Davis, of Robin D.G. Kelly, of so many people who have made those clear connections. All people uh, that I'm huge fans of. <laughs> same. We are also huge fans. Um, and they are definitely our touchstones among many. And, um, you know, many scholars and organizers in critical resistance and insight feminists of color against violence have historically made those connections. The Black Panthers made those connections. They're also um, part of the origin story of defund demands. So are incarcerated people who in the 70s were calling 
for the abolition of the judicial prison parole industrial complex. And so we learn from people who are directly targeted by racial capitalism. We learn from Angela Davis, who says that criminalization and prisons are designed to sort of hide the effects of racial capitalism. We learn from Ray Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who says, you know, capitalism is consistently trying to resolve crises of its own creation and criminalization is one of the primary ways that it does so. And so um, we also talked a lot in the book about kind of the current manifestation of racial capitalism, neoliberalism, which is essentially the opposite of defund, right? It's defunding um, education, social services, public housing, libraries, uh, hospitals, healthcare, common good, public good of any kind, resources for people in need of any kind and funnels those to capital and then criminalizes people who are trying to survive under those increasingly desperate conditions. And so um, that is sort of at the core of the analysis of no more police. And then where that takes us is what kind of society, what kinds of forms of governance are the antithesis to the defunding of the commons and the funding increasingly more and more voracious pouring of even pandemic relief funds into the coffers and pockets uh, of police and prisons and, and surveillance and borders. And we talk about that being a refunding of the commons. And that's what the demand to defund police is, is to say, we want to take money away from death-giving institutions and pour them into life-giving institutions. And we want to do that in a way that doesn't reenact and reaffirm policing in new ways, in the ways that you know social welfare programs or social work or public health and the medical or treatment can sometimes do, so often do. So um, it's really about reimagining what is the form of society, what is the form of sociality, what is the, the economic system, what is the uh, form of governance that we are looking to create that will enact our liberation dreams, that will make our hopes for a society in which everyone has everything what they need to reach their highest human potential. What What's going to make that possible? Defund the police is definitely the first step. It's certainly not the last. And um, it's, it, but it's a clear step in that direction. And that's, I think, the power of the demand. When the mass racial justice protests came about in the wake of George Floyd's killing, the Minneapolis uh, City Council, the city where Floyd was killed, started to ostensibly take seriously this demand to defund the police. At least they considered it, they talked about it. And, you know, if you just read the mainstream press or the right-wing press, Minneapolis defunded their police. What actually happened? Oh, my God. And, um, and for first, what, what actually happened in Minneapolis? And then I want to get to places where there is some progress being made. I do think what's important about that is is the the stories that are told about um, our work and what's happening and how those stories are manipulated to serve the re-legitimization of policing. I think 2020 saw one of the greatest crises of legitimacy for policing in this in the United States in decades. And there was a swift and powerful and ongoing backlash that is fueled by the mainstream media in the same way that Ida B. Wells talk, talks about the mainstream media being accomplished the lynching, um, that there's a, a, a way in which the mainstream media continues to fuel this backlash, to attempt to recuperate police, to blame violence um, in our communities, not on lack of things that we need to survive, but instead on um, individuals and, and on 
low police morale and the absence of police in some way. So I think we need to really deconstruct those narratives. And there's a lot in No More Police to help us do that. Um, and in the study and discussion guide that came out with it. I think um, the story of Minneapolis is, is central to this and it didn't start on May 25th, 2020. And so we're so grateful that Black Visions, um, one of the key organizations that was at the epicenter of that uprising, were willing to write a foreword really laying out both what they had been doing for years beforehand, they had succeeded in defunding the police department over a million dollars in 2018. And then, you know, the mayor came back and refunded it. So this was an ongoing struggle that was going on in the city. So it wasn't just this demand sort of came out of a moment, it came out of a struggle and it came out of organizing and it came out of political education and it came out of political analysis and growth around, you know, what the impact of reform had been in Minneapolis, which, you know, Minneapolis had adopted the vast majority of the gold standard reforms, best practices promoted by the DOJ, by everyone else. Derek Chauvin had been trained to not do exactly what he did when he kneeled on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes. So it, it was, it had done, it had all the policies, all the training, and that still happened. And so it was really an opportunity to step into that, but that was seeded by many years of organizing and, and political education analysis. And they lay that out really beautifully. In the this is Black, Black Visions, uh, Miski yes. Noor and Candace Montgomery, uh, yes. who write the foreword to your book, No More Please. Yes, yes, definitely. So that, that, and then we we also talk about that um, evolution in the in the main text. So what's happened in Minneapolis has been really beautiful. That people have moved from that moment to engaging community members through surveys, through people's movement assemblies, through um, ongoing conversations to really ask people what they need to feel safe. There have been many sort of experiments and practices. There are um, groups like Relationships Evolving Possibilities and the Powderhorn um, Community Safety Collective and Little Earth Protectors who are really thinking about what and practicing, what does it look like to create safety without police? A lot of their work is documented at millionexperiments.com if folks wanna check it out. And then, you know, the People's Movement Assembly, Black Visions put out a report on that series of conversations that happened in 2020. And they went back for a budget fight in 2021, in addition to fighting a ballot initiative that would have unshackled the city from a mandatory level of a police budget that a police union fought for in 1961 to keep their jobs, basically. And when there was also a crisis of uh, legitimacy of policing at the time. And so there's just really been so much work happening on the ground in in ways that are less visible than the burning of the third precinct, but certainly equally revolutionary in the sense that they're, they're really engaging people in conversation in Minneapolis about what safety looks like. And, you know, the city council has come and gone with the headlines in some respects that some folks have stayed in the struggle. Others have, you know, sort of blown with the political winds, but we know that's how organizing works. And the key to organizing is building power to, to make it, impossible for people to ignore your demands. We did that in 2020 and people are continuing to do that across the country. So where has, uh, are there are there other places in the country, um, maybe at a local level or even at the state level, um, or would it have to be at the, generally, of course, police departments are city-based, so it'd be at the city level where you see activists successfully chipping away 
at the funding that police get and redirecting that funding, or even the carceral state, the, the prison industrial complex gets, um, and new prisons get, and, and putting that into the things that foster public safety, um, community centers, and funding for the things that we actually need. Are there some success stories at the micro level that we can look to as we imagine a world without police? There are so many that we chronicle in No More Police and so many that, you know, didn't make it into those pages, but exist. And you can find out more about all of them at defundpolice.org, um, which is a site that gathers together information from cities and towns and locations across the country doing this work. And I will say that the biggest success is that cities across and communities across the country engaged in similar conversations to the ones that Black Visions and Reclaim the Block and many, 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 many other groups in Minneapolis engaged around what safety looks like in communities. Black Nashville Assembly, Jackson People's Assembly, um, many groups across the country um, engaged in community conversations about what safety needs requires that didn't necessarily make headlines. Um, some cities were successful in, uh, organizers successful in kind of commandeering, uh, taking over and mobilizing kind of city announced public safety task forces to really build out recommendations that would pour resources into communities and, and meeting community needs in Austin, in Oakland, in Durham, for instance. And all of those cities, organizers are still very much contending for power around implementation of those recommendations, funding of those initiatives, et cetera, with varying degrees of success. And I think the success across the board is that whereas pre-2020, it's not that people weren't fighting police budgets, but essentially, you know, city policymakers would would feel empowered to just write a blank check to the cops whenever they came and demanded money. Now they feel like they have to justify what they're doing because they know that the organizers are going to come for them or there's billboards up in LA, there's billboards up in uh, Milwaukee today talking about how much money is going to police and how much money is going to other things. That wasn't you know something they had to contend with before and that's the power that we've built. So that's really important. I do want to lift up Seattle, which is sort of a sleeper in terms of people across the country not paying attention. They're the only city that's defunded their police department two years in a row hmm. that secured millions of dollars for community safety projects and millions more for participatory budgeting process that the city is dragging its feet on implementing now. But nevertheless, um, and, and when you say defund, you mean taking some money cut, out of the budget, money. not cut. closing down the police department. <laughs> No, they have they have taken uh, significant amounts of money out of the police budget. They've also taken nine one one operators out of the police purview. They have you know taken some uh, other functions out of the police department. Uh, also, Minneapolis did the same. Took nine one one out of the police department, which makes more possible, right? If the people answering right. the phone aren't the police, then they might offer you some options that aren't the police, right? <laughs> right? And might be safer and actually meet your needs. And I think Atlanta has been very successful in doing that. Um, the policing alternative. Diversion Initiative has now created an option with 311 that you can call non-police responders who are community responders, who are people who are going to offer folks a, a range of options rather than a cage. And, um, you know, there, there are places everywhere where these things are happening. Um, right. They're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Denver, Colorado has a really interesting uh, they do. Uh, an alternative to calling the police. Yeah. 
What's interesting about Denver is that, and this is true across the country too, is that when the cops see something that looks like it's successful or is going to be successful in taking away some of their power or resources, they will set up a competing program. And then mm. in Denver, because 911 was not taken out of the police department, they conscripted the 911 operators to make sure they got the calls for their co-response program as opposed to the non-police community response program. Wow. And Interrupting Criminalization documented that um, in a report based on talking to local organizers that you can find at our site, um, Defund Police, Invest in Community Care. Um, and I think that's that is also the thing that we need to pay attention to is that the more successful we are, the more the police are going to fight back viciously with, you know, fear mongering narratives with literally, you know, stealing calls from people, literally undermining violence interruption programs by fomenting violence um, and uh, and by not answering calls for help and then blaming defund instead of, you know, blaming the fact that they are just not answering the calls because they're trying to make a point. Um, so I think that's, um, and and continuing to police and criminalize poverty instead. You know, uh, Seattle police have been doing almost daily sweeps of unhoused people and communities and then claiming that they don't have the resources to answer domestic violence calls. Well, first of all, the legislation told you which ones to prioritize. And second of all, what you're doing makes it clear, again, to the point of reform, that you're acting based on what your function is as opposed to what you claim it is. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck to you and Mariam uh, with your new book. Thank you so much for having me. It's always lovely to speak with you and congratulations on your position at YES. Thank you. Andrea Ritchie is co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization, the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. And she's a co-author with Mariam Kabaf, the newly published book that we've just been discussing, No More Police, The Case for Abolition. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.